0: And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey.
1: All the things that it takes to be a really good dirt lion hunter, Warner is all of those. Everyone.
0: On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we're back in the open country of Southeast Arizona. This is part two in our series on the life of a living legend, Warner Glenn. We're also going to learn more about Kelly, Warner's daughter, and her life in movies and modeling. We'll dive in deep into dry ground lion hunting, which I believe will aid us in getting our PhDs as knowledgeable American woodsmen. You gotta know something about dry ground lion hunting. We'll also learn about when Mr. Warner almost went to prison and how it impacted his life, including his involvement in the founding of a very influential conservation group called the Malpai Borderlands Group. You're not going to want to miss this one.
2: I think if a person doing what he likes to do, that's a big thing for his head and his heart both.
0: Guys, we've got an exclusive bear grease discount code for FHF gear. That's Fish Hunt Fight Gear. I've been using their products for the last year, and I love carrying my gear in a chest rig or my binos in their bino harness. It's easier and more accessible than a backpack And it doesn't get in the way when I'm riding my mule. For a limited time, you can head over to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease. And listeners to this here podcast get a discount on purchases for your FHF Gear system. And you can see how I build my gear system. So go to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease for a special code if you're buying stuff from FHF Gear. Check it out. Fish hunt fight FHF Gear. We've again found ourselves on the borderlands of the southern United States and southeast Arizona. On the last episode, we were introduced to Warner Glenn. He can see old Mexico from his house. He's 85 years old and lives the life of an authentic American cowboy with a heavy dose of mountain lion hunter. Lion hunting and ranching, you see, go hand in hand and have since this part of the country was settled by cattle ranchers.
2: I'm gonna have you ride
0: a a little one this morning called Rosalie. That's the name of the mule you're putting me on? Yeah. Rosalie. How old is this mule? That's the only problem with her. She's about
2: 17. 17. Yeah, and it's too bad. You hate to see a mule like this get older.
0: We walk over to a bigger bay-colored mule, a brown mule. So this is your go-to mule. This is, what's this mule's name? Yeah, Vivian. How old is she?
2: I tell you, Vivian's got to be about 15 years old.
0: This is your. This is the one you go to when you got a...
2: well. Usually I'm, I, I ride this le, at least other, every other day. I've got three I ride pretty regular Bridger mm-hmm. and Vivian and and uh, Brer. Yeah. So and Kelly, she's got Rosalie and Pete and some of those others. <laughs>
0: when when does a mule get just right in eight the, the it prime years?
2: Depends on the prime mule. Years. Along, but but I tell you what. As far as being gentle and trustworthy and everything, I would say like six or seven, really, to where you could trust them
0: yeah.
2: with anybody yeah. riding them. And you can you can ride them with two or three, but you better be ready for a little wreck if it should happen. Yes. You know, because yeah. they're just not used to everything. Yeah, and, yeah. and all these mountains, I tell
0: you, they're hard on people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mr. Warner threads a leather pistol holster onto his belt. He carries a three fifty seven revolver. So every day when you're just out riding, you're I, carrying a sidearm? I, I, I do. And what I, do you do. What you carrying?
2: Well, I tell you, you never know when you're going to need, need one for it. could be some kind of abhorment. But most of these ranchers nowadays carry a sidearm. The drug traffic through here and also the... Well, you never know. So it doesn't hurt to have one.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're now out by the dog kennels. In part one, Mr. Warner told us that he's got sixteen hounds. And he told us about his best hound, Hook. What's what's this dog's name? This is
2: Tracker. He's a young one. He's only a year and a half old. But he's been in on about three three lines and he's gonna make it, I've really got high hope for him okay? and this is Spur.
0: Wow, he's, he's a big be, old athletic dog isn't he? He's only two? He would beat number two. Oh, he's the number two dog. <laughs> With 16 dogs scattered in front of us, we make a five-mile loop, giving them some exercise. On our ride, we can look into old Mexico, we can see the border wall, and I'm amazed that an 85-year-old man is still going like he's 45. Warner's father Marvin started lion hunting in the 1930s when their horse colts and cattle were being killed by mountain lions. It wasn't their fault. The lions were just being lions, and it really wasn't Marvin and Warner's fault for becoming lion hunters. It's just what they had to do to protect their way of life. In 1947, Marvin had become an expert at what we say in the business, catching lions. The American economy was booming after World War II, people began to have disposable income, and Marvin turned his craft into a business and started outfitting. The Glens became nationally renowned as dry ground lion hunters. In 2021, Warner and his daughter Kelly still hunt the same dirt as Marvin with some of the same lineage of dogs and with the same unique mix of integrity genuine hospitality and toughness that defines this desert and the people that make a living off the land here. Before we dive into lion dogs and fistfights, I want to talk about Kelly Glenn Kembro, Warner's daughter. She has lived a very interesting life. We heard about her mule wreck and helicopter rescue and about her getting bit by a lion. Go check that out in part one if you hadn't listened to it. I'd like, though, to hear about two parts of her life that went beyond ranching and hunting. I bet you won't be able to guess what they are. If you're over 35 years old and a gun enthusiast, you've probably seen a picture of Kelly.
3: We were always a part of the hunting, so my dad and my grandpa Marvin hunted all winter. They hunted a lot of lions and deer. We guided for coos deer, mule deer, javelina, and lion. Mm. And it was a busy—it was just what I thought life was about. Yeah. It was either cooking, fixing lunches, feeding, mules, guiding. I guided from the time I was 17 mm. with them. I did not want to go to college. I loved it. I mm. craved— guiding i loved guiding for coos deer especially and hunting mountain lions Mm. and so and they they embraced that and it was kind of a man's world yeah you know i was a little girl growing up wanting to learn how to track a lion and wanting to go glass for deer i didn't have any reason to go to town when i went out to go off to college my grandpa got me a new rifle a parka all these things to make my life more comfortable As a guide here, Uh,
2: because
0: he
3: didn't want me to go. mm. Yeah. Anyway, mom and dad raised us and my grandparents to work really hard. We always had guests. We either had hunters or in the summer we had kids. So I went to college and then I came back and went into the movie industry and I did casting in locations for eight years out of Tucson. Wow. And I loved it because I could go work on a show for 31 days, come home and hunt. So I kind of so picked... So you,
0: you, they would tell you what they were looking for for scenery? Yep. And was it, was it always Western-type films?
3: Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I did 33 films. It was We did Terminal Velocity with Jerry Lewis, Johnny Depp, Faye Dunaway, Paulina Poroskova, and then we would do Young Guns and Young Riders. And sometimes it was scenery, and then sometimes it was— What a,
0: years did you do that?
3: From 85 to about 93. Okay. I got married wow, in 92, and I kept doing it for a moment after that.
0: That's so interesting, your, your family's connection to, to movies. Yeah. You, uh, well, it theirs started a long time before right, that. Right, right. Yeah. With your dad and the movies yeah. he was in, and grandfather— I now ask Kelly about a very interesting job she had for 31 years and how her presence in the position was groundbreaking.
3: So in 1988, Jay Sard came. He was a good friend, you know, and he asked, he called me and he goes, Kelly Ruger called and they want me to photograph a girl or a woman that lives a Western life, carries a gun and uses it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, you know. And I had gone right out of college. I went to Plaza 3 Modeling in Tucson Mm. because... A lot of my family, distant family, said, You gotta be a model, because I was six feet tall and skinny. That was their basis. After a few <laughs> weeks of that, I figured out I didn't wanna be a runway model. Yeah. But so we went down here and took a mule, and I had literally, my husband calls them my corrective shoes, because that's all I wear is ugly shoes. I had on my brogans and a gun and braids. I, mean, I was who I was, and we took the picture. Well, They loved it. Bill Ruger Sr. was very skeptical because he was a man's man and he really didn't want his company represented by a girl. Mm. And
0: in 1988? Yeah. That would have been fairly new thinking.
3: Yes, it was new thinking. Yeah. So it was a trial run that first year and there was a full page in the Wall Street Journal. There was it, it just blew up wow. and went really good across the nation, <laughs> yeah. and the the Ruger followers loved it.
0: So you were on you were on a lot of their advertising. Yeah, posters.
3: They did a poster yeah. every year.
0: You stayed the the Ruger girl for thirty one years. Thirty one years. Yeah, yes. and just on on our way here. My uncle told me that he had seen your picture in a small town in Arkansas in a pawn shop from a poster from years and years ago.
3: Yep. The, so I would do two shows a year, the NRA show and the SHOT show. The SHOT show was more dealers, international, national, you know, guys in business suits. The NRA show was Americans. It mm-hmm. was it was coon hunters, farmers, gun store owners right. that would come with their family because they could. So my job at those shows was to sit in the Ruger booth and they would put a stack of posters in front of me and I'd sign and they'd tell me <laughs> who to sign to. The, the man would stand there and say, my store is you know, B&B Guns or whatever. Oh, okay. And I'd sign to that store. When they all figured out, all those people figured out I was a hunter for real they loved it and then they would like flock around and we'd talk about trailing dry ground hunting lions but it was great I have I kept a lot of things I got a lot of letters you could tell a a person a woman who wanted to become a shooter and a hunter she would timidly stand over there and listen and when finally they kind of broke up then she'd step up and she'd say is there any way you could We could talk about this again Mm. and so i'd share my address and and or nowadays it it lately you know the last 20 years it was an email but and we'd visit back and forth and i'd recommend what firearms she should buy so i coached unplanned i coached a lot of women and kids
0: yeah (laughs) kelly was a pioneer for women in the hunting and shooting industry Today, women are the fastest growing group in the hunting space. Fist bumped Kelly. Dry ground lion hunting. We've said it over and over, and I plan to devote some time to trying to understand what this means, and I hope you'll join me. Despite your perceived interest in the topic, it's a nuanced and important cog in the wheel of North American hunting. I believe that the characteristics that it takes to be a darn good dry ground lion hunter are the marrow of American ruggedness. I'm not saying it's the only thing that carries that, but I'm quite certain that it does. Gary Newcomb instilled in me the desire to be a well-rounded woodsman and to get a PhD in woodsmanship. I believe that to be a true connoisseur of North American hunting, you need to understand something about dry ground lion hunting. You don't have to do it. Most probably never will. You don't have to like it. You probably wouldn't. But I feel like my insides are expanded when I talk to people who've dedicated their lives to a craft. And being a successful lion hunter requires the dedication of a lifetime. Shorty Gorham is one of the world's best bullfighters. He's worked for the PBR, Professional Bull Riders, for 17 years and has dedicated his life to his craft. His job is to protect bull riders once they've come off of a bull's back and are on the ground. They basically run interference distracting the bull while the rider gets away. They used to call these guys rodeo clowns. I find that people who are among the best at what they do are good at spotting others in other fields who are like them shorty is also a dry ground lion hunter i wanted to see what he had to say about warner glenn
4: being from the southwest and and hunting lions on dry ground if you ask around ask very many questions you're going to hear warner's name and so that's that's how i had heard of him just trying to learn as much as i could and read as much as i could and when that topic comes up warner's one of the one of the big names you know he's he's one of the best dry ground lion hunters in the in the world and you could say of all times you know they they all the well-known big time dry ground lion hunters know respect and love warner glenn so it's just a household name you know so when i got to go to his house it was it was quite the experience you know i'll never forget it i pulled in i i flown there to Arizona from a straight from a bull ride and drove a couple hours to the house, pulled in in a rental car and, and Warner comes, well, Warner was out feeding his mules, comes over and shakes my hand and he's a very tall man. So I'm looking up at him and, and uh, from that point till I felt like I had known Warner all my life was, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. Maybe it's just a, just a great guy, just a genuine (laughs) man. And
0: it's interesting to me how there's some people that have that quality and in your experience with him was very similar to my first meeting him what is it that makes a person be able to have that kind of connection with people
4: i don't you know i don't know i really don't you know the thing is i've met a lot of his clients that have hunted with him and warner's return clientele is just massive like i know guys that have hunted with him for 20 years every single year just because they want to go spend time with warner glenn but they they just want that connection with warner so they keep keep going back year after year after year you know and there's a real rough and tough lion hunter he he once said he said when i uh, when my time comes to an end and i and i go off to the other side he said If I look around in my second life and I don't see Warner Glenn, I'm going to know I really screwed up because we all know Warner's going to heaven. And that just (laughs) describes Warner.
0: John Belosier has known Mr. Warner for 20 plus years and has professionally hunted lions on dry ground for over 30. By professionally, I mean he worked for the state of Oregon managing livestock killing and nuisance lions. In 2018, John was called to ply his craft in a tragic situation. He and his dogs tracked down the first wild mountain lion in modern times in Oregon that killed a human. Wild stuff. But his hunting wasn't just a career, he loves what he does and is a lifelong student of it. He's one of these guys that's done whatever it took to put himself in relationship with the best in the world in his field, one of which is Warner Glenn. I asked John to define for us what dry ground lion hunting is.
1: Hunting lions dry ground would be without the aid of snow for cutting tracks and tracking conditions. The reason that makes that easier is uh, if you have country that's got roads in it, that you can go and cut a lion track in the snow, and A, you know the age of it, because you know when it quits snowing, and B, you know the direction it's traveling. Uh, So those two things are two of the more difficult things in lion hunting, and you have both of those taken care of for you. A lot of the dry ground lion hunting that goes on in the United States is in the southwest United States, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, southern Utah, southern Nevada, places like that, and uh, I guess one of many reasons that would be harder is, uh, A, when you dry ground lion hunt, most of the time, many of the mountain ranges in the Southwest that lions live in are only accessible by horse back or a foot. So your dogs have to be free casted and be able to start a lion track on their own. Anybody that's hunted with hounds very much or even dealt with dogs very much would know that it would take a little more work to to be put into your dogs to have them where they would only start a lion track because... Hound dogs, by their very nature, kind of like to trail things, and many times there's a lot more smells out there than just a lion track.
0: John, tell me about tell me about Warner Glenn. Um, that's a big question.
1: Yeah, so I've known Warner for uh, over two decades. I met him in my quest to kind of learn how to be a dry ground lion hunter. That was what originally uh, sparked Warner and I's connection, and has kept that. You know, the the Glens are. I consider them family. They're very close. There's certainly not a lot of people like that. Uh, You know, Warner's a cowboy and a lion hunter and a family person. I don't really think, I mean, I spent quite a little time around him and got the opportunity to hunt with him numerous, numerous days. And, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of people like that, uh, that have dedicated their whole life to something. And I might be a little bit off, but I think I believe the first time Warner started lion hunting, he was around seven or eight years old, and he's now closing in on 85, and that's a that's a pretty long career as a dirt lion hunter, and there's not been any gaps to speak of in that. He was in the military for a very short time, but he's pretty well spent his whole life in those mountains, you know, in the desert southwest mountains chasing those things.
0: You've hunted with a lot of people. What what stands out to
1: you? What have you learned from Warner? Oh boy, that would be. A, I've learned a lot from Warner. I I think Clay maybe one of the big things about that is that uh, when you go with someone that is truly at the top of their of their game, which it's not hard to tell when you go do that if you you know you have a little background in it and stuff. Is uh, you know Warner is just one of those rare people that you know dry ground lion hunt doing the stuff that we do is a lot of work and and Warner it. He still goes out that like he's hunting snakes, and that's pretty impressive, the amount of work it is and stuff, but uh, he's just an extremely good track reader and and is just really good at reading his dogs and telling you exactly what they're up to, and he's a cowboy deluxe, I mean, to travel in bad country, I mean, you just don't get any better than that, and he just, uh, but you know, Warner just, all of the things that embody somebody to be a lion hunter, you know, he's Tall and athletic and tough and and can get around and and just all the things that it takes to be a really good lion hunter, a really good dirt lion hunter. Warner is all of those. Everyone.
0: There are two overarching factors that make this hunting difficult. Number one, it takes place in rugged regions without many roads. Lions can travel incredible distances on a daily basis, so it's got to be an extremely mobile hunt. A hunter has to become an expert at wilderness travel, and it's typically done with equines. Secondly, the arid nature of the land makes for difficult conditions for holding scent. It's really that simple. Dry ground lion hunting is all about scent scent on dirt doesn't hold well and it makes for some of the most difficult trailing conditions for dogs a good dry ground lion dog is a phenomenal creature it may just look like a scraggly old hound to somebody but in my opinion they're the olympians of the hound world in humans our olfactory strength is minimal compared to many other animals so it's hard for us to understand how a dog interprets the world I think we got to nerd out for a minute to really understand the currency of the hound, which is scent. I asked my buddy Chris Powell for his insight. He's a lifelong houndsman, a former law enforcement canine handler, and the host of the Houndsman XP podcast. Here's what he had to say about scent.
5: So, scent is one of the things that is key to... For houndsmen, but it's also one of the most misunderstood parts of how our hounds work and scent. You know, it's a living thing. When an animal walks through the landscape, it is shedding cells at the rate of about fifty thousand per minute. And as those cells are shed, it's coming out through being they're exhaling and they're losing it that way. When they brush up against plants and vegetation they're shedding cells in that instance too and when you look at the composition of a cell it's 80 percent water as this animal moves through its environment and it's shedding these cells either through exhaling or, or it's called scurf uh, the the it's actually got a scientific name when those cells are shed it's called scurf and it comes off of this this animal this living being and it's it's falling onto the landscape it acts differently in the different environments that it falls in so when it falls in moist environment it doesn't de- dehydrate as quickly. So therefore, the scent exists for a longer period of time. And when it falls into dry, arid conditions, just simple evaporation causes that scent to not be able to exist for as long. Now, in the case of dry ground, you know, rock those sort of things, it's it's a deal where if the rock's got a crack in it, the least bit of shade will actually shelter that thing from direct sunlight and arid conditions just for, for a little bit. And that enables a hound to be able to smell that uh, scent that's deposited there.
0: I asked Chris about another component of scent and trailing that doesn't involve the actual scent of the animal, but rather ground
5: disturbance. So when an animal walks through an environment or across the landscape, he is actually disturbing natural bacteria in the soil. And he uses the, the combination of animal scent, the bacteria. Fresh earth has a distinct smell that we can smell as people. A dog's nasal plane in their olfactory is able to pick that up at, a, I mean, compounded 75 times greater than what we can so as an animal walks across this landscape and he's he's disturbing leaves and he's kicking over rocks and and different things like that it's activating the natural world right there and the the microscopic organisms in that then the the animal scent falls in that same scent picture and now he is he is able to develop what we call a scent picture and all that stuff is mixed together it's all brought together
0: what you're telling me is that a dog is not just trailing the the scurf of a lion he's trailing ground disturbance he's trailing ground disturbance Mm -hmm. of where that lion's foot touched the dirt and made the ground smell different just like if you tilled the soil it has a it has a scent I heard a good analogy once comparing a dog's nose to a human's. It went like this. A human may walk into a house and smell lasagna cooking in an oven and think, man, that lasagna smells great. A dog walks into the house and he smells layers. He smells the Italian pork sausage starting to crisp, roasted tomato sauce, fresh mozzarella cheese, basil, ricotta cheese. He smells the individual components with extreme precision. If you haven't listened to episode 22, you're missing a bunch of background information that will give context to Warner's life. I'm assuming you know how a series works. And ultimately, we're in pursuit of getting a glimpse into his world. I wanted to ask Mr. Warner specifically about his hunting.
2: Well, I tell you, it, it, it's kind of a tough old life uh, uh, to be a dry ground line under you got to really like it. Yeah. I, I like uh, being out in the country, of course, and and watching those dogs work, a uh, good work, riding a good mule in that rough country. And, of course, we're working cattle. A lot of, probably eight months out of the year, we're, we're working cattle, but we have those dogs year-round, and if a lion comes in and kills a calf or cold or whatever, then we go and try to catch that lion. But yeah. usually the lion hunt we do, uh, which is mostly on dry ground, and that, and it's called that because we very seldom get snow in this country. We do right. it once in a while in the wintertime, we'll get a yeah. snow, but we do that about... Four months out, out of the year, we would take clients. And then, then the rest of the time, it's just when we had a fresh kill. Yeah. Either our neighbors wanted to sketch one or something like that. Yeah. But that drag around, line hunting different because you, you do a lot of riding. And those dogs, you got, before you ever pick up a track, you...
0: You got to find trail. a trail.
2: And then you got to find which way it's going. Uh, and in snow, it's pretty easy. You can see the tracks. But in this country out here... Uh, just play grass or dirt or pine needles or whatever you're in. Uh, usually that track's pretty hard to find, especially with a pack of hounds already yeah. trailing it, muffing the tracks out. Yeah. So you just gotta ride until you find that track. If you're going the wrong way on it, you got to get them turned around and head and ride, or you're gonna see a lot of country that old line lives left. You're not <laughs> never gonna catch anything. Yeah. But, yeah. If you're going the right way, you're in good shape. Then you just go on and concentrate on. Yeah. And I tell you, you've got to help your dogs in this country. It's a rough old rugged Rimrock country and there's a lot of country those are like that line goes through that the dogs can't go. The bluffier, bigger rims. You got to take them around and hit yeah. it, hit it on top and that type of thing. So there's quite a bit of footwork that goes in. Somebody's got to be with those dogs a foot yeah. to help them.
0: Now you were known and are still known, even in your latter years here, of being able to follow <laughs> these dogs on foot. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you, I
2: don't do that. It, I I can't do that anymore. I wish I could. (laughs) And that's one thing I really enjoyed about hunting was following those dogs afoot. Yeah, yeah. I could do it. I was lucky. I was physically able to do that for several years. And, and uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful way to see what dogs are doing what. It, you, it doesn't yeah. take very long to learn uh, who's the cheerleaders in the bunch and who's yeah. doing the actual work. Th-
0: and you were doing this, too, before there were GPS collars and you were able to track yeah, dogs. Right. That so time, you that's right. So somebody had to stay with them to hear the dogs. You
2: had to stay within hearing if you could. Yeah, and I I I couldn't stay right with them on a on a good. I could if they were just cold trailing. I'd just be right with them, but once they got that line moving, got a, a jump track is what we call, they they go so fast I could. But I would uh, I would take my time climbing the mountain. But on the other when we started down, I I, I could really smoke it going yeah. off some of those mountains, yeah. but but yeah. I, I had to. But, of course, in those days, I could hear good. Mm -hmm. I kind of lost my hearing now.
0: Kelly's been pounding around with Mr. Warner since she was a little girl. Here's what she had to say about dry ground lion hunting.
3: So I love dry ground lion hunting. There's every challenge there. Mm -hmm. There's, you you know, you have your hounds and you hit a canyon going at an angle. You're either going up or down it. And if there's a track there, they're going to hit it and they're going to go down. If if they're pointing down, they're going to go down. A hound can't tell what direction the line's going by sight. Right. So the first challenge is we get in there and we find that track Mm -hmm. and then turning them around. And then there's, in this country, we have so many conditions. And we always say we have more excuses than team ropers. There's, there's... (laughs) We're always in a drought. It's how much moisture content is in the soil, the wind, the heat. We hunt in a lot of warm temperatures Mm -hmm. and evaporation.
0: And this is really bad for scent conditions for these dogs.
3: That's right. People don't even realize the minuscule moisture that's still in the soil, even if you haven't had rain. And we're used to Mm -hmm. not having rain. When you look at a track, a, a lion track on a cow trail, it'll still have, if it's fresh, like an hour old it'll still have color in it. So the track is still a different color than the soil. So the soil's faded out and the track will have some color. There's so many factors and it's such a challenge. We help our dogs. My grandpa right. and my dad both taught me, you get off your mule and you help them. You yeah. find the track. You and go. that's
0: And that's pretty, for other types of hunting, that's not it, that's not necessarily normal. Right. So there's more human involvement with the actual dogs on the track. Exactly. So these dogs have to be, that you have to be able to call them to you. You yep. have to, I mean, there's some, another layer of complexity with training these dogs.
3: So in every pack, so we only take five or six in a pack. In every pack, you'll have your slower moving dogs. You'll have your strike dogs. And then you'll have a dog that'll, you can watch them. Dad has a lot of silent dogs. Mm. They don't do much barking, and but you can watch their body language, and you'll see a dog out there a hundred yards, and it's a good dog. You know him. You know he isn't a deer chaser. And, yeah. And you'll see him just working up, and you can tell he's just working up in the body language and his tail the way it's wagging. We scoop up our dogs and take them to him. A lot of times, one of us will be looking at the track and helping the dogs along, and it's by watching the body language of, the, and that's a challenge. Because there's rocks everywhere. And in this country, scent holds longer on rock than it does in the dirt. Mm. It holds, you'll see an older dog going along smelling the underside of leaves in a thicket.
5: Mm. And
3: that's where that lion's body, and, and, you, and they'll, they'll hold, they'll stop. There's a dog named Catch It. She'll stop, her whole body will be frozen in time and she'll be smelling it. and you know, she's getting, she's, she's she knows really that stuff. Yep. Scent. Yep. Yeah. And then she'll trot forward and do it again. And I'll tell dad if catch it, smelled it. And so we go to her with those other dogs, the slower dogs, because if you don't do that in this country, you probably won't get the lion jump.
0: How long of a track, let's say, let's say it's just an average day of lion hunting and you find a track early in the morning.
3: We trailed a lion one day 36 miles. Wow. And we jumped him at nine o'clock that night and pulled him off because they were all give out. I mean, it was, we knew he was jumped because even though those dogs were exhausted, their body language and their attitudes had a second wind. Right. But we pulled him off because we had gotten, we were 18 miles from the truck. We, We lead a pack mule. With water. Okay. Almost every single day, unless we've had a big rain. uh, Water
0: for the dogs. Yeah. And for you guys. Well,
3: but ours, you know, normally we can all pack our own water. Yeah. But those dogs, especially in the Bighorn Sheep area, it's a very dry, rough, rocky, hot, sun-beaten region. Yeah. When they start trailing, dehydration is what slows them down first.
0: A typical week of lion hunting dry ground lion hunting here would you catch a lion
3: when we were guiding all winter we would average a lion every four days
0: okay yeah that's that's really good
3: yeah that meant sometimes you caught one day one on a hunt and then the next hunt you might have caught it on day six or whatever it was kind of an average we book a 10-day hunt okay and that's because of the conditions yeah You know, you just don't know what your conditions are going to be. Freezing, thawing, heat, wind, extreme cold. We've had some cold temperatures down here and no snow.
0: Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Newcomb has an Aura Frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura Frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house in 2007. I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover extreme genetic stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. for 15% off sport dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry born in 2003 in Knoxville Tennessee sport dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs people at sport dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner it's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential the Sport Dog promise to customers is simple gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me to track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com beargrease to learn more. Hunting with dogs is one of the most primitive styles of hunting in terms of deep human history. It's primitive because our connection with canines is undeniably ancient. Long before the modern politically correct trends began to regulate how humans think about and utilize animals, men and dogs were getting along just fine. The human-dog relationship is truly unique in the animal kingdom and many attribute our success as a species to that relationship. Dadgummit, while I'm on my soapbox, I want to share something with you. I believe that the opposition to the dog thing is much deeper and significant than it seems on the surface. I believe that hunting with dogs inside the boundaries of science-based wildlife management is an integral part of the expression of being human to some people. It seems like our society is very interested in preserving people's rights to express their humanity inside of their culture and in their way, which is a good thing. I believe that by changing the rules on us about dogs and saying it's not okay anymore to use them inside of hunting, is to redefine part of our humanity. Hound hunting certainly isn't for everybody. And yes, there are some rugged parts of it that many people aren't used to, but we're not asking them to participate. If my conscience doesn't condemn me and it's inside the boundaries of the law and the activity that I'm participating in actually helps wild animals and preserves wild places, don't try to take it away from me because it condemns your conscience. That's the only thing I'm asking people to consider. Man, here we go. I got to say it. I'm sorry, guys. And for the odd hunter that says that hunting with hounds isn't fair chase, Man, I've got a few questions for you. What are your thoughts on the use of optics that give a person amplified supernatural vision? What about rangefinders? What about cellular trail cameras, supplemental feeding, food plots for whitetails, digital mapping programs on your phone? I'm not suggesting that these things aren't ethical or fair chase, not at all. I'm just asking us all to explore a broader way of thinking. Please hear my heart inside of this. My intent is not that this conversation would divide us, but it would actually rather unite us as hunters and allow us to see through the eyes of our brothers and sisters that live life differently and do things different than us. I said all that to say, it was a long way to get here. I wanted to ask Mr. Warner about his dogs. If you're a hound or dog person, you'll enjoy the nerd out. But if you're not, you're being brought into an intimate conversation if you'll listen.
2: But I tell you, now I, I have mostly tree walkers. Hmm. And uh, I'm not saying they're better. I, I don't think they're better cold trailers or strike dogs or even tree dogs. But they're fair at all of that. And they're they're really good catch dogs. They're pushers. Hmm. Once they get a quarry jumped. And running, boy, they, they're... They're fast the, on the track. They're fast on the track. Mm. And I tell you, they're not really aggressive. Those hounds, they bay something, but they kind of keep their they, distance. They
0: stay back. Yeah. Even on a lion, that helps. What do you think's the most important characteristics of a dry ground line dog for the way that you hunt? The nose, good feet, and
2: to have that instinct to, to run cats. All of them don't like to run cats. Really? But but I tell you, uh, they they don't necessarily have to be the fastest dog in the block, but they they've got to be able to keep that track moving.
0: Do you have a favorite hound you've ever had? That's kind of like that uh, mule deal you
2: asked me about a minute ago. Uh, I wouldn't say this in front of the dogs down there, but <laughs> probably a, a half a half walker and a half black and tan, a little dog named Kink K I N K. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was probably one of the smartest dogs I ever had in my life, mm-hmm. and he'd go get in somewhere. He could do it all. He could. He was a track on the track. He could cold trail. He was good in the bluffs. You got in this country. You got to have a dog that's not afraid of heights. He's got to be good in the bluffs.
0: Yeah, he's got to be able to of, climb and navigate.
2: That's right, and, and take some chances. You don't want to reckless. I mean the words. They're jumping off the 40-foot bluff or something. I mean, yeah, nothing. But you want them to, if they come to a 10-foot drop, you want them to pile off that sucker and keep going. Yeah. You know what I mean? And most of them, some of these, you need, you need a dog to get good in that rough country.
0: I want to ask Mr. Warner about a wild component of hunting lions in the karst, bluffy regions of the Southwest. These lions don't always run up trees. Some of these stories might blow your mind.
2: I, I tell you a lot in this country, you're hoping you tree one. You hope you tree a line or bed out on a bluff. But a lot of times, they'll get back in some kind of a hole or a crevice or crack or a cave, or a shallow cave or a deep cave. Sometimes they get way, way back. We've had them get back in my old abandoned mine tunnels. Mm. And, and those are dangerous because you don't know if they're going to cave in, and mm. you're going to So anyway, that at the time that's mentioned in there, uh, Kelly and I were together, and, and we had that lion back in there, and we got our dogs out. and I said, "Do you want to go in and shoot the lion, or do you want to hold the dogs?" She said, "I better hold the dogs." <laughs> so, I, so I went in, and I did. You you want to make your shot count and You've yeah. got It's it's not a dangerous deal as far as the lion. Goes, but I tell you what, what you got to think about in these caves, especially the time, are rattlesnakes hibernating because they hibernate, it. and you don't want a belly in there and crawl and get on top of those snakes or, or scorpions or stuff like that. And what, yeah, you, you or, or really the danger. And also, when you fire it. that shot in there, you got to have your ears plugged but my hair's not too good but i always really plug them yeah good before i fire a shot and it came and you sure want to make sure that bullet goes in to a vital place yeah and, and, and any hunter knows you can shoot an animal through the heart and they can still run like heck for about 30 40 yards before you they bet. drop dead so that's what happened i i hit the line in the chest with 350 pistol and boy, he just boiled out and I just, I was laying on my belly cause it, the cave was only about this high. I mean, yeah. And, and I, I just ducked. And he run under. I, I don't even remember if he stepped on me. He might have jumped completely over me. But it, it all, it, it happens so fast. And it, it left
0: a blood trail right down the, your back. Yeah, the
2: blood was, it went right down. And I didn't even know that. Kelly told me later, she said, "What did you do to your back?" <laughs> I had a, a, a string of blood, and I said, "Well, sure, I didn't do anything." She said, "You get, Then we figured out it that was a lion.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's a fairly common. It's pretty common for them to go in caves down here and to yeah, go and in and shoot is. them in a cave. Yeah, And, yeah. and you've got you've to had get, one run between your legs too, for, haven't you? Yeah,
2: yeah. The first <laughs> the first thing you have to do is get all your dogs behind you. You got to get them all, and that's hard because they're all yes uh, uh, competition for who's going to get the first bite uh, uh, hold of the lion. You know, so you yeah. got to get, and it's noisy. It's yes. dusty. Those caves are, it's hard to see. It, it, and you got to have a good flashlight. you got. You got to have a good light because that's what equalizes. Well, it, it changes everything in your favor.
0: When Mr. Warner wants to tell you a story, you listen. He wanted to tell me this one. It involves a young hound named Catch It.
2: I'm going to tell you a little story about a dog that happened this year. We got a little dog down here I'll show you in the morning named Kathy. And she's making a really good dog, a young dog. And we, we went over here uh, in that sheep area and hit a good track early in the morning and ended up baying this pretty big old tom out on, out on the bluff. And the bluff was probably, where he was backed out on, it was probably 40 feet straight down to a ledge and then another 20 feet into a big, big rock slide rock, boulder pile and there he was backed up on the edge of it with a tail over there mm. and the dogs were all right there, there it was five, five dogs there and Kelly and I had come in it got off her mules and I had the rifle and I could see that the dogs were here and the lion was right here and I could see it broadside and so I thought well I'm going to go ahead and shoot that thing before it knocks one of those dogs off the bluff I, I am just barely behind the shoulder and I squeezed it off. It was two twenty three. I carry a little two twenty three. And I, I hit it just where I ate. But it it, it just like that and it, my shot, those dogs got a little close, the line reached out and grabbed catch it just like that. And pulled it in and went over backwards and they both of them fell off the bluff. Mm. It just makes you sick. And, and we how, some, how high is the bluff? It was forty feet. To the, okay. to the first ledge and then another 20 feet. And this was bad stuff mm. at the bottom. We knew she was dead. Told Kelly, I said, go on down there. And get. The dogs were, had gone back and were coming around. And I went back to get the mules and she got me on the radio and she said, Dad, catch it's all right. She's standing on this lion fighting <laughs> the other dogs off. The lion was dead. Of course, she had hit right on top of the lion's body. And evidently it broke because while we were skinning the lion, old Hook went up and hit another track. There'd been two lions. We didn't know it. And they went on, and she went with them, and they bayed it. and about three hours, they bayed it in another big patch of bluffs. And
0: that's another story. So but that dog was totally fine after she, falling she sure was 60 feet. Using numbers in hunting is always touchy business, but we use math in every other part of our lives to understand the world around us, so it's relevant in this space, too. I asked Kelly if she had any idea how many lions her dad had caught in his lifetime.
3: When Mama passed away, we went through a bunch of books. She had kept records. Dad dad keeps a journal. My grandpa kept a journal all the way up till. The year he died, of Mm. every lion they caught, Mm. whether it was here or Sonora, Mexico, or wherever. So we counted.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a
3: certain date that they had caught their 500th lion, and he documented that. Wow. Then we, we went on through all of everybody's accounts, and I compared. If Wendy wrote, my mom Wendy, if she wrote down they caught a lion in Hog Canyon on December 12th, I made sure that I didn't report the same lion out of Warner's Journal. I see. We were honest. I had two women help me. We went, <laughs> yeah. And we were, right now we're at about 1,200 lions. Wow. Yeah. And that's the ones in the sheep area, the depredating.
0: That's a lot lot of lions.
3: It is for a lifetime.
0: When I hear a huge number of animals harvested, my mind doesn't think of a tally mark or hides on a wall. I think about the number of times that he had to hook up his horse trailer in the dark, wake up at 2 a.m., load 16 dogs in the truck, and the literal hundreds of thousands of miles he's put while on the back of an equine. And I'm not throwing that big number around lightly. Let's do some more math. Mr. Warner has lion hunted since he was six years old. As a conservative estimate, he's ridden on average 2,500 miles per year for the last 70 years of his life. And that's 175,000 miles, and he's still counting. He rides every day. I now want to ask Mr. Warner about how they've been involved in some meaningful ways to preserve the open country of the Southwest. This is some legit conservation. Tell me about the the Malpai Borderlands Group. i tell you what,
2: there was a fellow here, a good friend of mine named Drummond Hadley, that bought a ranch over here in New Mexico, a a big ranch, a big ranch. And he, he bought it, actually he bought it from the... It was owned by Nature's Conservancy. And they were looking for a, somebody to buy it to keep it in a viable ranch and not develop it. And they didn't want to sell it to somebody that was gonna break it up in 40-acre parcels and that type, you know, sell all yeah. the sites. Yeah. They wanted to keep it as an open country ranch, as an cat, operating cattle ranch. And they got to talking with the, uh, uh, Nature's Conservancy people and they they met us. They, and they said the ranchers ought to get together and and form a group to keep this country open and get to where we could buy conservation easements on some of the deeded land on these ranches to keep from subdivision out is what we've been trying to do. So that's what got us together. It was trying to keep these ranches in ranching and not 40-acre parcels.
0: Very interesting stuff. Mr. Warner and his wife, Wendy, who has since passed away, were some of the founding members, and Mr. Warner is the director to this day. Here's the scoop. The Malpai Borderlands Group is a 501c3 nonprofit that was started in 1991 as the relationship between ranchers, the federal government, and some environmental groups began to deteriorate. They work with private landowners, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations to help manage over 1 million acres of unfragmented land in Southeast Arizona and Southwest New Mexico. The group says, quote, "...our goal is to restore and maintain the natural processes that create and protect a healthy, unfragmented landscape to support a diverse, flourishing community of human, plant, and animal life in our Borderlands region." Together, we will accomplish this by working to encourage profitable ranching and other traditional livelihoods while we sustain the open space of our land for generations to come, end of quote. This is a summary of what these guys do and have done. They've helped acquire conservation easements on 78,000 acres of private land. This basically means that private landowners choose to put limitations on what can be done with their land Like, it can't be subdivided when it's sold. Since 1994, 75,000 acres of land have been involved in prescribed fire, which is an important part of what the group originally promoted for ecosystem health. Over the last 20 years, the Malpai group has been involved in efforts aimed at making the protection of endangered species in the area more compatible with rural livelihoods. In cooperation, their efforts on behalf of the jaguar, the leopard frog, the log-nosed bat, the ridge-nosed rattlesnake, among others, has resulted in a more secure future for these animals, as well as for the landowners whose livelihoods help maintain their habitats. Here's a great quote that demonstrates the influence of the organization. Quote, Perhaps as important as any single thing we've accomplished it's the fact that this small group has had significant influence on the way that ranchers, the environmental community, the government, and the public perceive conservation and ranching today. The focus is moving away from confrontation, regulation, and litigation toward finding common ground and working together, using the best available science, working at the level closest to the ground, and exhibiting real stewardship. End of quote. What you seem to be able to do, and you were able to work with a lot of different groups, Mr. We Warner. Did, we had to. I mean, you... had,
2: and it was it was a pleasure. I, I tell you, we were Nature Conservancy was a big one to help us get to know the right people, and not only with the, the environmental type people, but the agency people, yeah. Forest Service, the BLM, the state land. Yeah. The Fish and Wildlife Service, all of those have something to do with all this country. So yeah. if you can get all those people together and agree on keeping it open and keeping it the way it is, I mean, for hunters, for ranchers, fragmentation, we're trying to keep, keep it, it open,
0: fragmented. You know, I, tell me if, if this is a true assessment, and this is partly what I read inside of your book, Okay, is that, and this book was written about you, you didn't write the book, but the author, Ed, said that you had a lot of tact and and wisdom in working with all these different people to, to bring it in with a lot of pe- – maybe some of these groups would have naturally been in conflict with one another. But but you were able to say, hey, we're really all on the same team here. And you were able to bring a bunch of people together yeah. for a purpose, which was, I mean, quite I, a feat.
2: I, I was part of it. But I tell you, we had, we had some other players – uh, our neighbors, some of these ranchers, were more better at that than I, I was. But I, I helped any way I could. Yeah. And and we would we would have we had the head of the Forest Service, the head of the BLM, the head of all the Fish and Wildlife Service, come from Washington, mm-hmm. and we'd put them on mules. That's where I came in. I put them on a good mule and take them to the top of the <laughs> mountains and yeah. show them what we were talking about. We were a part of it. We hosted a lot of it because we had the facilities here to hold meetings, and also we could feed group, groups of people that come in. And yeah. we didn't wine them and dine them, trying to make them. We we just kind of rewarded them for taking the time to come and look.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. And,
2: and and I tell you, we got a lot done.
0: The fruit of success almost always grows from the seed of failure, and sometimes that part of the journey is overlooked. An influential event in Mr. Warner's life took place in the early 1980s, long before the success of the Malpai Borderlands Group, and I want to see if Mr. Warner is open to talking about it. You got in a tussle with one of the border agents. Yeah, Uh, I, I did. Did that Change the way you, you saw bet. that you needed to deal with people. Can you, you talk to you me bet. about that? Why sure. Yeah, you
2: bet that did.
0: Just tell me the t- kind of tell me the story and then tell me how it affected I, you. I had a
2: pretty pretty volatile temper when I was younger, and, and a lot of stuff I, I, I did then that I wouldn't do nowadays. Yeah. I get my butt kicked nowadays, but <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know. You uh, still look pretty wiry. Uh, that fellow was that fellow was out of line. No yeah. doubt about it. He told me what he could do and, uh, anywhere he wanted on my needed land, and I had, I couldn't do anything about it. And I told him I thought I could, and he said, well, you sure can. So I did. <laughs> but anyway, it, it got me in a big trouble. You, one thing about it, he was a federal uniformed officer. Mm-hmm. I darn sure took him to the ground and rub, rubbed his head in the dirt. I mean, it
0: was just a— How old were you, Mr. Warner? Uh,
2: probably 47, 48. Okay. I could go on and on about that, but that—that uh, that of course, that's a felony. Anytime mm-hmm. you would, uh, touch a federal officer in an assault, a mm-hmm. federal officer, you—that's that's a felony charge. And there's no doubt about it. I did it. It mm-hmm. wasn't, and I never made uh, any excuses. I just told him why. I did it, and uh, I didn't go to prison, but I came that close. And also, yeah. if, if you have a felony charge, you can't have a firearm for so many years, mm-hmm. and it affects your way of life. So it taught me, big boy, you better be careful what you're doing. And, and the, they told me that some of the agents, they had an agent that dealt with things like that, and they came and talked to me. And they said, yeah. Warner, what you should have done is gone to his supervisor and, yeah. and, and let them take care of it. And I yeah. said, well, now I can see that. At the time, I was hot, I was tired, and this guy was telling me one. I—and he was standing on my private land, and we were talking about the effect of vehicle traffic over right. my private land where right. there was no roads. Right. I, I, I just figured that—in that, that in my way of thinking right then, I had a right to protect my property yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. But he wasn't, but he wasn't a federal—I I, was in the wrong, no no doubt. Yeah. Uh, but so was he, and—, and well, the way it turned out, I didn't go to prison, and they shipped him out of here. Yeah, and it was, but it was a thing that I, I wished I'd have gone about a different and way. it different.
0: Well, it, but what I take away from it is that later you became very skillful in dealing with these people. And that that event changed yeah. the course of kind of who At, you were and how you worked with these people. A, a, absolutely, yeah.
2: A, and, and really, I respect the law enforcement. Yeah, hundred percent. I really. There there are some guys in law enforcement that probably don't deserve to be there, but by and large, uh, I I back those guys. I, I sure. And, and part of that's just it, I kind of learned. You know, they've got a they've got a job to do. Yeah, and it's a tough one uh i'm not ashamed that that
0: happened but it taught me a good lesson you know i deeply value that you can say that because a lot of times negative things happen to people and it shapes them and makes them bitter and changes their life for the negative but what i respect about your character is that that you know you can own up to it and but it i think it i think it changed you for the better
2: I'll tell you a little, I went up and told daddy about it because I knew it was gonna, he was going to find out. Mm. And he sat there and listened, didn't say anything. And after I was through telling him, he said, I didn't know it was against the law to hit one of those bastards. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: <I said, laughs> man, your dad, he was taking your side, wasn't he? That's yeah, what a good dad's supposed I to do. I didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Oh, uh, that's great. In closing, I asked Mr. Warner if he had any advice for life. This is what he said.
2: I I tell you, it really doesn't pay you to to worry about a lot of stuff because just go ahead and do your best at what you're doing and and don't let things get into your brain of that's going to worry you. But and that's hard to do. It's mm-hmm. hard not to worry about, especially if it's family oriented or, and other Another that just kind of eat as healthy as you can and and stay active. Yeah. Stay, don't sit on your butt. You work very hard, don't you? You know, as hard as it can. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, it's not very hard anymore.
0: Well, you're—I know tomorrow morning you're planning to get up at four a.m. Oh yeah, and yeah, we, I know this evening we were with you and you worked till dark. I mean that that's a pretty yeah. long day that you're putting yeah. in, which is probably pretty average for yeah, you. Yeah,
2: yeah. I I try. I tell you, in summertime, I try to take an hour's nap in the middle of the day, okay, after lunch or something like that. But I, as far as advice, just eat well, and of course, leave leave the. Any of the substance abuse out of you. I, I don't think a guy needs to smoke. He darn sure doesn't use. Have to use alcohol in in excess, and then just do what you're happy doing. I, I tell you, I wouldn't. Uh, you can make a lot more money if you're interested in monetary type reward, doing something besides hunting and renting. I mean, yeah. But I love to do it. I mean, it's something that I think if a person doing what he likes to do, that, that's a big thing for his head to his heart, both.
0: Why do you Why do you love doing what you do? What What is your reward for the kind of lifestyle that you live? Oh
2: my gosh! Well, it's very few people that get to be out in the Lord's creation every day. A lot of people never have the chance to even think about what I see during the day's time. And, and you know, I, I pray and I, it does you good to pray. Mm-hmm. I, I tell you what, it, do, it does you. You may not get what you asked for, but it's sure, at least you know you've done everything you can. <laughs> but they're darn sure uh, something created the world we live in yeah i mean just think about what happens i mean the sun the moon and things that are tied to the tides and the the oceans and the, the landscape a little fawn born and that little sucker jumps up in a little while and goes to looking for a nipple uh, you know what i mean mm-hmm. that's something that it, the the creator figured it out and we haven't figured it all out yet
0: sequences of words strung together in English communicated through human vocal cords only carry so much weight by themselves. However, when those words are connected to a robust life, they have the power to truly impact us. I don't have a lot to say in closing other than I cherish the opportunity to know people like the Glens. On a personal level, I was deeply impacted by Mr. Warner's humility and how he carried himself despite his accomplishments, which could so easily be translated into pride. On a wider scale, I think the character and value system of the Glens is something that America can look to to remember where we came from. You and I can't change the course of a nation, nor can politicians or man-made laws, but you and I can dictate and change how we live, our character, and our responses to the things that life will throw at us while we're on this planet. I'm not suggesting lack of civic involvement, but I am saying that real change starts in the heart of man, and that is really the only thing we can control. I love dry ground lion hunting, mules, and hound dogs. I love everything that the glens have done for conservation. But what I mostly took away from them was deeper and almost indescribable. Long live the open country of the Southwest and the wild beasts, the cowboys, and the lion hunters that inhabited them. I can't thank you folks enough for listening to Bear Grease. We'll have one more podcast that will involve Mr. Warner. On the next episode, we'll be talking about the Borderlands Jaguars in the United States. It's wild and interesting stuff, so don't miss it. Please share Bear Grease with a friend this week. And keep the open country open. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries it empowers you to be the best version of yourself it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma if you're thinking about starting therapy give BetterHelp a try it's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease